This evening's reading is Genesis chapter 4, which is on page 3 in the Church Bibles. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusiel, and Methusiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Neymar. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Thank you, Laura, for reading for us. 
Now we're going to tackle this chapter together in a moment. It's going to help you to have your Bible there in front of you. If you've got it open, page uh, three, and we'll work our way through to page four in a bit. Just to let you know the plan, we're going to, um, uh, after this, this week, we're going to take a short pause, and next week we're going to spend one week looking at the issue of men and women uh, in Genesis 1 to 4. So you're going to, we're going to take a, a, just a little while to, time out to uh, examine this topic, which is, of course has got such relevance for us uh, both in the church and in the world that we live. Um, and then after that, we'll return to chapter 5 and we'll continue our series through up until the summer holidays uh, where we'll hit chapter, uh, the end of chapter 11. That's the current plan and we may continue after that um, as well. That's what we're going. And we're beginning with chapter 4 tonight. Let me pray uh, before we come to it. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have uh, each week to come and to hear your word, to hear it read to us, and then to have it explained and proclaimed to us. And Lord, we do treat that as a privilege. We know that it is a life-giving word uh, that comes to us. So we thank you for it, and we pray that this evening you give us ears to hear what you say, and hearts and lives then uh, that respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in paradise left behind. We're now outside the garden and away from the presence of God. And what do we find? Well, we find the world that Genesis 1 to 3 told us we would find. We find ourselves in a mixed up world. On the one hand, it's a world of immense blessing and immense progress. We see the birth of children and grandchildren. So the task of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, that's begun. And we see here the task to subdue the earth has begun as well. We find agriculture and animal husbandry and the development of technology and civilization. There's lots of progress. But on the other hand, we find the ongoing presence of sin and the devastating effects of God's curse on Adam and Eve being played out amongst their offspring. It's a world where wickedness and suffering grows. So quickly we find ourselves in a world full of temptation and sin and anger and sexual immorality and violence and murder. This is what we're left with after the fall, this mixed-up world with both rapid development and at the same time a rapid descent into depravity. And here we still find ourselves today. Now this chapter, chapter 4, it's structured very simply. It's structured in terms of the offspring of Adam and Eve. On the back of the server sheet you can see uh, that basic blocks of structure. Um, We're going to tackle it in that way uh, tonight. Just to say we're going to spend most of our time in the first section and then it will speed up uh, through the last two. So first of all, chapter uh, chapter 4, sorry, verse 1 to 16, we see two kinds of offspring bringing offerings. I heard last week in the curse upon the serpent that there would be conflict between two kinds of offspring, two lines, two types of people. There'd be the offspring of Eve, the people of faith, the people of God, those who trust in God. And then there were the offspring of the serpent, those who will oppose the people of God. And we were told to expect that there would be this running battle 
in our world between these two kinds of offspring. And that's what we see. Let's follow the narrative along. Verse 1 and 2, we're told that Eve has two sons, Cain and Abel. And the boys grow up and they take different career paths. Abel's a shepherd, Cain is a farmer. And we think, so far, so good. God's command to subdue the earth is, is taking place. The animals are, and the land, they're being made productive. Human progress is moving forwards. And verse 3 and 4, they bring some promise too. The Lord is being worshipped. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The two men, they both bring offerings in worship. They both come to worship. Things are as they should be, or so we might think. But let's read on. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now we're intrigued, aren't we? Why is one offering from one offspring regarded, but not the other? Does God prefer shepherds to farmers? Well, no, I don't think that can be, can be it. Adam was told to till the soil, and we know that God shows no favoritism. Is an animal offering better than an arable offering? Well, I don't think that's it either. Later on, when God gives his law, uh, later in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there he says that both grain and lambs are acceptable forms of offering to God. So I don't think that's why. Is it the quality of the offerings? Well, there might be something in that. Just look at the text. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground... But Abel, we're told, brought the firstborn of the flock and the fat portions. Now, that's actually the best bit. It's not the worst bit. When we think of the fat bit, we think of the gristly bit, and that's not the case here. It's kind of like the fillet steak um, part, if you have that in a sheep. I'm not sure if you do. But maybe, maybe this is what's going on there. Maybe Cain, he, he gave what he wanted to give. But Abel brought the very best of what he could give. There's something about that in the text here. But those of us who've been studying Hebrews, we've read Hebrews 11, and we might remember verse 4, which speaks of this event. It says this, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So this tells us the why. Why did Abel give the very best of his produce to God? Answer, his faith. He did it because he trusted in God. He loved God. And therefore, God commends him as righteous for his faith alone. In turn, this shows us that Cain, though he made his offering, he did not make that offering in faith. 
like many religious people today, he makes the mistake of thinking that, well, he can approach God on his own terms. He, he can do whatever he wants in his worship, and God has to accept his choice of offering. I gave you this. I've done my bit, he says to God, and therefore you owe me. You should reward me. But that's not how it works. To this early in the Bible, we're taught one of the great truths of the Bible, that in this fallen world, religious works in themselves cannot please God. It is faith alone that God commends. Now Cain's reaction, it proves that God is right in his judgment. Second part of verse 5. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. He cannot hide his anger that God will not accept what he thinks should be good enough to please him. Cain, as many people do, thinks it outrageous that God considers his contribution unacceptable. That, to borrow the words of Isaiah, that his righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. But God does think that. And the problem, therefore, is Cain's heart. And so Cain is very angry. Now at this point, we might expect Cain to just get wiped off the face of the map, but it doesn't happen. Yet again, as we've seen in Genesis, God is gracious to rebellious sinners. He engages Cain in conversation, just as he did to Cain's parents when they rebelled against God. He gives him opportunity to repent of his anger and to receive forgiveness. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, that is, if you repent of your anger now, will you not be accepted? And then God goes even further. He pleads with him. He sort of sees that this is a kind of crossroads for Cain, that it's a fearful moment when he can make a choice. And if you do not do well, that is, if you do not repent of your anger towards me in this moment, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. the first time that sin is explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Look how it's described. It's like a wild beast. It's crouching at the door of your heart. Sin's ready to pounce on you, to overpower you, to rule you, to master you. We learn that sin has crept in much closer. It's internal. Cain is tempted, not by the devil as his mother was, but but by the flesh. And he needs to wake up to the danger. He needs to repent before his sin takes over his heart and his life. But he doesn't. On this day, when he hears God's voice, he hardens his heart with terrible consequences. Let's read verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
Come on, brother, let's go out to the field. The farming is hard work. I could do with a hand. And then out of sight, he takes his opportunity and there is blood on the ground. Murder. It's premeditated, it's violent, it's hatred fueled murder. 1 John chapter 3 tells us that in this moment, Cain showed that he was an offspring of the serpent. It says this, 1 John chapter 3 verse 12, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous as if his brother's faith in God it only infuriates him further it shows up his sinfulness all the more the offspring of the serpent murders the offspring of faith and John says that this pattern continues to this day verse 9 of Genesis the Lord confronts the assailant then the Lord said to Cain where is Abel your brother And the response is aggressive, it's defiant, and it's a downright lie. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Denies responsibility. But the Lord is having none of that. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What a terrifying thing that is, that verse. It's terrifying for anyone who has committed a sin and thought they got away with it. The blood of Abel cries for justice and the Lord hears that cry and will not let it go unanswered. It really is pretty terrifying. This teaches us that, that creation itself acts as a kind of testifying witness against us. It keeps a record. There's a kind of residual evidence against us in the fabric of this world enough to convict us before God. Now we actually know this to a degree in in forensics, don't we? We know there's DNA left behind, there's footprints in the mud, there's fingerprints on the door handle. But this is more than that. This says that creation keeps a record of all our hidden sins. That no one gets away with anything at all in the end that all are held to account for every evil deed that no one else will ever know about, even those ones. It should be terrifying to us that unless we find forgiveness in Christ, we will receive just punishment for all that we have done. But at the same time, this verse is a great comfort. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. John Calvin writes of this verse. This is a wonderfully sweet consolation to good men who are unjustly harassed. When they hear that their own sufferings, which they silently endure, go into the presence of God on their own accord to demand vengeance. Abel was speechless when his throat was being cut or in whatever other manner he was losing his life. 
But after death, the voice of his blood was a more vehement than any eloquence of the orator. Thus, oppression and silence do not hinder God from judging or the cause which the world supposes to be buried. There's perfect justice. And what a comfort that is to all who have been sinned against. Now, it's no comfort to Cain. Cain committed this crime. Cain's not repentant. He doesn't seek forgiveness. He refuses to accept responsibility. And so he receives his sentence. Actually, even then, if you noticed, he actually complains that the sentence is too harsh. The ground will become impossible for him to farm. He'll be driven further away from the presence of the Lord to be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Cain complains that this is too terrible for him. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now I want us just to pay attention to his description of his punishment in verse 14. Is it not a kind of hell on earth? Absolute futility in his efforts, driven from the ground. Being cut off from God and his goodness, from your face I shall be hidden. An unceasing restlessness and wandering, an always chasing and never finding home, and a living in constant fear of a death that might come. Is it not just a foretaste of what hell will be like? Of course, that will be eternally worse. And it's not that yet. And it's not that yet because even here, even after this wickedness, even after the lack of repentance, even after he says that the punishment's too harsh and complains, even here we discover that God is merciful. Cain doesn't die immediately, as he deserves. God even protects him. He puts some kind of mark on him as a way of warning others against taking vengeance. Presumably that's from Adam or one of his other brothers who may may not have been born yet. God's merciful to him. Nevertheless, there must be justice and his sentence is carried out. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, which means wandering east of Eden. Now let's turn to the second part of our story, verse 16 to 24, where we meet the offspring of Cain. Now the previous section began by lifting our hopes and then dashing them, and the same thing happens again. In these verses, in the first verses from verses 16 onwards, we we find our hopes immediately raised We see more generational increase. We see multiple offspring in his grace. God permits Cain to have children. We see the beginnings of civilization, the first city, verse 17. And then again, we see more human progress. Descendants of Cain are prodigious. They're like the kind of kids of that family member who 
sends the Christmas letter around. You know, the ones, they're all A-star students and they love to tell you. Let's look at the account of the children of Lamech, one of Cain's great-grandchildren. Verse 20. Uh, Adar bought, uh, bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Really is pretty amazing stuff. The Bedouin culture, the herding of animals and the use of them for transport and for farming, metalworking, kind of industry, and music and song. And the daughter, Naamah, there at the end, she's held in the Jewish tradition to be the kind of original at Songstress. These are all huge landmarks in progress in the ancient world. Development of farming and agriculture, technology and the arts, the development of culture. It's all here. Here's the beginnings of human progress. All things that continue to be built on and improved right up until today. In making man in his image, God has blessed the world with these things, through his common grace. And again, this might give us real hope for humanity. But that's not all that's happening, alas. Our world often promises that that as growth happens through politics or science or technology or art or culture or education, that humanity, well, we're heading towards some kind of paradise, that together we might be able to make some kind of paradise, some kind of heaven on earth. But the Bible is much more realistic. The biblical worldview is that alongside human progress grows human wickedness. See, the problem is, for all that these developments promise, they can't change the human heart. And this passage reveals this to us in the father of these prodigies, this guy Lamech, the seventh in the line from Adam. And we get our first glimpse of him in verse 19. And we read there that Lamech took two wives. That's already going to raise some alarm bells for us. Lamech has gone away from God's pattern for marriage that was laid out in Genesis 2, that of one man and one woman for one flesh to for one life together. Lamech, as many of his descendants will do, is already given to sexual immorality and is rewriting God's definition of marriage. Isn't it remarkable? There really are no new sins, just reworked ancient ones. But it's verse 23 and 24 where we really get a sense of his character. I don't know if you watched Eurovision last night, if that's your thing or not. I kind of like it, but I only really like the completely ridiculous acts. So the kind of Croatias of this world. Um, Not so much the the ones who take themselves really seriously. Now one thing you notice, which is true not just of Eurovision, but of all uh, music, is that music is a tremendous medium for communicating a message So many artists will use their songs to convey their thoughts and their hopes and their values 
and what they would want the world to know and what they would want the world to believe. They hope to persuade others about their positions on things and they hope to, that they will adopt them. Well, here we have a song. A guy called Lamech sings the second song in Genesis. And the first song, if you remember, was Adam's song. It was a song of joy and praise that God had granted him his wife Eve. But Lamech's song is much more, if you like, Eurovision. It's not like that at all. It is boastful. It is arrogance. And within it contains a threat of terrible violence. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, or sang to his wives, it's all poetry, Adar and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. See what's going on? He boasts of the brutal killing of a child, a young man, for merely striking him. It's disproportionate. And he not merely kills, just like Cain did, he glories in his killing. Verse 24 reminds us that, God, that though God justly punished Cain for his sin, he still had mercy. God protected the one who sinned against him. Lamech here, he despises mercy. He glories in unleashing all his rage in vengeance. And it's not merely a boast, it's actually also a threat. Notice that he sings this to his wives, and of course it's broadcast more widely. He's sending a message. This is what will happen to you too if you mess with me. And with that, our hopes for humanity are dashed. See, all that progress that we heard about, all that wonderful stuff that was going on in the family, it hasn't changed the human heart. In fact, it's merely given opportunity for the human heart to grow in pride and arrogance and violence. Alamek's not alone, is he? this is the great teaching of this section. We find that despite human progress, wickedness grows. And that human sin takes what are God's good gifts to humanity and invests them with evil. So art, music and song become tools for self-boasting and full of violence and depravity. Likewise, gentle animal husbandry, under human sin it becomes abuse. Things like battery farms and the horrors of cosmetic testing. Metalworking, science that can make life-saving medical technology or develop amazing vaccines is flipped for weaponry and for drugs that will addict and even take the lives of vulnerable people. See, all God gives us to bless us by his common grace when put under the influence of sin and sinful humanity it becomes corrupted and then pitted against God's purposes. A commentator on Genesis, a guy called Derek Kidner 
he points out that in these chapters that we've looked at, we've seen the introduction of what are the three great enemies of humanity and of God's people in particular. He points out that in chapter 3 we saw the devil, that in chapter 4, 1 to 16 we find the flesh, and now here in verse 17 to 24 we see the world. This is what we're left with after the fall, progressing and developing in many things, but still corrupted and ruled by sin and wickedness, which we cannot escape with the world, the flesh, and the devil ranged against us. And so we're left with despair. If progress can't save us, if progress can't deal with our biggest problems, well, what can? And this is where our final two verses give us hope. Verse 25 and 26, as we close, the offspring of Seth. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's some hope in Eve. Eve shows herself in this chapter to have become a woman of faith. In verse 1, which we didn't really look at earlier on, she recognised there that the Lord had helped her in gaining her first son. And now here at the end, she recognises God's graciousness in giving her her third. God has appointed for me another offspring. And then that phrase, that phrase does give us some hope because if Cain has been shown to be the offspring of the serpent, well then Abel must have been the one whose God's line would raise up someone to destroy the work of the serpent. Abel was the one we had hope in, but then Abel's been killed. And so here the Lord ensures that the line of his promised salvation is reopened. Seth is born, from whom will come the people of God. There will come Noah and Abraham and all Israel, and then ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of the Hebrews, again, we'll come across this verse next week in our Sunday morning service. The writer of the Hebrews says this about the Lord Jesus. He says that we have come to this Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's really a remarkable verse. See, whereas Abel's ground-soaking blood cried for divine justice against sinners, Jesus Christ's blood cries for divine forgiveness to sinners. The line of Seth will one day produce the God-man, Jesus Christ, whose shed blood will soak the ground of Calvary to pay the penalty for the sins of the world so that we might be accepted and draw near to him again. 
then the people of faith can call upon his name and be saved. That's the note on which this passage ends. It ends with people beginning to call upon the name of the Lord. And that is, I think, to call upon him for salvation. It's to say, save us, Lord, for we cannot save ourselves. And that's the logical thing to do here, isn't it? Just think about it. First part of chapter 4 told us that sin had taken hold of our hearts in our, our very flesh. We're unable to rule over sin. That, and it told us that no human religious work can earn God's favour. And it gave us a foretaste of hell, this place of eternal futility and restless wandering, cut off from God. And then finally, these last verses, they've told us that the world is corrupted that no political mechanism, no economic system, no technological advancement, no cultural development or educational improvement, no amount of human progress can deal with the problem of the human heart. Did you see the logic? If human religion can't save us, and human progress can't save us, if the world, the flesh and the devil are ranged against us, Well, there's only one logical thing to do, to call upon our Creator. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Cry, save us, Lord Jesus. In Jesus Christ, we have a righteous one whose blood was poured upon the ground so that the penalty for sin could be paid so that God's justice could be satisfied, so that forgiveness could be offered to sinful humanity. All that's needed is the response of faith. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That's what our world needs to hear. Let's pray. Our Father, for the second week in a row, we have seen this this terrible uh, impact that sin has had upon the world. And so, Lord, we come and we grieve for what we have done when we rebelled against you. We grieve for the suffering that there is in this world, and we grieve for the suffering of our own sin, that our own sin has caused to us and to others. Lord God, we know, we recognise that we cannot save ourselves, that no good deeds are good enough, that no amount of development or progress will make us right with you. And so, Lord God, we do the only thing that we can do. We call upon your name. Save us, we pray. We thank you that you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, whose blood has been shed for us, who has paid for our sin. We thank you that simply by faith in him, we can be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.